Hopefully when you came in, you got a handout because the second page of it is the outline for the sermon today. It'll probably be helpful. Um, I'm taking a bit of a risk uh, teaching this way, but I, I, I think it'll be worth it. And if not, there's, you know, 51 other weeks in the, in the year, so we'll be all right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to start out a little strong today. I like to usually save that for the end after you've, got, after you've warmed up a little bit. So I'm just going to start out strong. I'll soften up, though, as we go along. There's this really pervasive lie in our society. It's very pervasive. It influences me on a deep level. I guarantee it influences you. Uh, it influences the church. It's a lie that's a mixture of Christianity and American myth. We're learning through the multi-ethnic IQ training that it's really kind of a major fuel for racism in America, um, as well as many other problems. But it's a simple lie. It's a lie that suggests that, that, that wealth, comfort, and influence, or what we'd call power, influence, is a good thing. God wants you to have it, and when you have it, that means you've got God's blessing. This is, this is, this is a lie that is, uh, that is very pervasive, um, I, I think, in all of our lives. It's something that we probably shape most of our lives around, pursuing uh, wealth, if not wealth, at least comfort. You know, we want to be comfortable. Um, uh, we're in the process of refinancing our house, talking about wealth, and, uh, um, you know, we're, the work we're going to do because of the refinance is going to make our lives a little bit more comfortable, you know? And so we put a, an immense amount of energy into this. Um, and, and, and we do that in, in a lot of areas of our lives. And, and there's something about it in the Christian faith and, and, and preached from preachers, probably myself and, and many others, and, and, and in our studies and in our books and our Bible studies and our all these different things, teaches that that's good and that's, that's a sign that God's blessing you, that, that, you're, that you're comfortable, uh, or that you have enough, that you have more than enough, and that you should pursue these things. Now, that's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we have to work against this constantly. If you're constantly acquiring wealth and holding on to it and, you know, uh, trying to make your life more and more comfortable and in the pursuit of God's, and you think that's God's will for your life, I'm just here to tell you that it's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus tells us what it means to be a follower. And Jesus said, this is what it means to be a follower of me. It was worded as a command. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. <laughs> cross, of course, is a, you know, an electric chair. It's an executions tool. He says, you want to become a follower of me, you, you're going to start with death in mind. That, that's what it meant to carry your cross, right? You're, you're walking to your own execution. You're, you're carrying the chair that will eventually electrocute you. So he's like, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to start. The first step is to pick up your cross, which means you're, you know that death will be a part of the journey. And death has to be part of the journey because the whole thing about being a Christian is resurrection life. One of the true marks of Christianity, and this has been exploited, and this has been, you know, this is, this is a spectrum. And so, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm getting a little, I'm a little, I told you I was starting out strong, but so there's a balance here. But one, it's, it's been misused, but one of the marks of Christianity is suffering. Now, I want to differentiate real briefly the difference between suffering and sacrifice, uh, and there's a really simple definition. Suffering is something that happens to you. Sacrifice is something you choose. 
All right, and so I'm not talking about suffering in the sense that, man, this happened to you and you didn't have any control over it, and why would God allow that to happen? That's a, that's a whole other sermon. There's, there's a great theology around lament and mourning and all of this. I'm really talking about suffering as, as I call it, sacrifice. Y- y- we make decisions and we put at risk those things that we value because we're following Jesus. We're picking up a cross, which is a decision. The suffering then, because of the cross, isn't because bad things happen to you. It's because decisions you made. You, you put yourself at risk. You, and, and, and so one of the marks of Christianity that I just want to challenge you today um, is uh, what have you put at risk because of your faith in Jesus? Has, have you, has your family ever been at risk? Has your finances ever been at risk? Has your future ever been at risk because you're following Jesus. Well, um, Paul, of course, who's the character we've been studying, we're going to be studying because we're reading his letter to the Philippian church, he put a lot at risk. We're going to look at two passages where Paul talks about suffering. Now, once again, it's a specific kind of suffering. It's suffering based on real decisions that Paul made. He made these decisions. He knew the cost, and he made them anyways, and then he gets in trouble. So it's not suffering that he didn't have control over. He, he walks into the suffering. He had picked up a cross, and now he had, to pay the, he had to deal with the problems because of his choice to follow Jesus. And this is one of the things that he talks about in his letter to the Philippian church. Uh, and that's what we want to look at. So um, let's spend a second there. So if you have a handout, it's the second page. I want to look at two letters of Paul. We're working our way through uh, Philippians. We're now uh, picking up on verse 12 of chapter 1, so we're still in chapter 1 of Philippians. And what I found is, is that this passage in, first, in Philippians 1 is really similar to a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, it's the second letter that we have of Paul. He wrote more letters to the Corinthians than just two, but the second one that we have in the canon of Scripture in, in, in chapter 1, verse 8. And what's interesting, in both of these, they cover a lot of the same stuff, which is why there's highlights. And someone asked me, um, you know, how, how long it took for me to draw on each one of these. And I thought it was funny, because um, I didn't. But uh, they have a lot in common, but they have a lot that, there's, they have a couple things where they're not the same. And so what I want to explore today is what's a Christian perspective of suffering from somebody, suffering once again from the context of sacrifice, decisions you make, not things that happen to you because, you know, you get sick or, or you lose your job and you didn't do anything. To, that's, a, that's suffering that the Bible talks about. But suffering as a sacrifice, you've, you've put yourself at risk and now you've, you've, you're hurting because of it. You've picked up a cross, so to speak. What does that look like and why does it matter? And to do that, we're going to look at these two passages and we're going to compare and contrast the two of them. What I love about this is both of them are in chapter 1. Paul's writing to churches that he planted. He's talking about difficulty that he's had. And right away he said, let me tell you how it's been. Let me, let me talk about the stuff that I've had to deal with, the suffering that I experienced. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So the first point is this. Paul has a need to explain his suffering. There's a need for him to say, let me explain to you what's going on here. And he does this in Corinthians as well, right at the beginning. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed. 
In other words, his motivation is very clear right from the onset. He says, let me tell you what's really going on. And this is really important. I want to just step back because in, if you put your life at risk in the name of Jesus, people aren't going to get it. And so right away, number one, the first point is you're going to have to explain it. Other types of suffering, you know, bad things happen. It's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I can't believe that happened. But when you suffer because you've made difficult choices to follow Jesus, you're going to like, wait, let me explain to you what's really going on here. Let me explain to you how this really works. If you're going to do something that's radically generous or make a sacrifice that will cost you something, that's going to cost you everything, it's going to take some explanation. Jesus said uh, once that we have to count the cost of following Jesus. He says that's what you got to do before you choose to follow Jesus. You got to count the cost. What is it going to cost you? In other words, it might not end up in these typical blessings that we talk about, but it's actually going to require something of you. It's going to require deep generosity and vulnerability and intentionality and all of these things that are very risky. You might even put your life in danger because you're following Jesus. It says you got to count your cost. But this cost that we're counting, the, the, the price of following Jesus, it might not make sense to everybody. Even people in the church, you know. And so Paul, right from the beginning, right here in chapter 1 of Philippians or chapter 1 in Corinthians, he says, now let me tell you what, what this is all about. All right, number two, he says this, verse 13. He says, as a result of this stuff, that happened to me, this bad stuff, this hard stuff, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. All right. So first he says, I need to explain this to you. And then he says, here's what happens as a result of my suffering. Here's what happens because I put myself at risk I followed Jesus, and I ended up in prison. That's where he's at right now. He's in prison. He's got these palace guards. And uh, he tells them what happened. I want to be very clear. I don't think God uh, makes bad things happen so that good can come from them. But I do know that God takes bad things and makes something good out of them. You know, at the, uh, uh, here we see that Paul had experienced imprisonment and uh, he immediately was able to see the good that was coming from it. He says, it's actually strengthened my witness amongst the palace guards. The gospel is still advancing. In Corinthians, he said something similar. He says it like this in verse 9, if you follow the blue line. He says, but this happened. In other words, this is why it happened. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. So there's two different uh, positive things that can come from suffering, from sacrifice. One is we can put ourselves at risk, and then God uses it when, you know, the world pushes back, and God uses it in really cool ways. And, and let me just say that's the more exciting thing to happen. The other thing that can happen when we put ourselves at risk and we suffer because of it is we learn from the experience that we, it taught us how to rely on God more. See, one of those is really practical. He, he, he accomplished practical things in his ministry because of the suffering he was experiencing. The other one is a little bit more abstract. Another way of saying it is like this. If you're having a difficult time, there's real value in recognizing the good that comes out of it. When you're in the midst of it, that isn't always easy. 
in hindsight, sometimes it, it helps. But if you're going through a difficult time, even psychologists would say there's real value in finding the good in it. And at the very least, one of the good things that can come from our suffering is learning to rely on God more. Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds so Christian, you know. And it is. It's not nearly as fun. Like, it's not nearly as fun as actually seeing something positive come from it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when something actually, like, this didn't go right, but then all of these good things came as a result, you're like, wow, that, that was kind of worth it. But when it doesn't go right, and the only thing that you get out of it is like, well, at least I learned to trust God more. And you're like, you know, God, couldn't I have learned another way? I was willing to learn another way. And this is one of the differences between these letters. In, in, in his situation, writing to the Philippians, when he's in prison, most likely in Rome, he's, uh, he's like, look, uh, there are real good things happening because of this imprisonment. But when he's writing to the Corinthians, we don't know exactly what he's suffering from. He might be in prison. He might have been stoned. He might have been, you know, we don't know, but it was bad. He says, well, at least I learned to rely on God more. So first... He's like, i got to explain this to you because you're not going to get it otherwise. And second, let me tell you the good that's come from it. And then the third, let me tell you how I feel about that. And this is also one of the differences. The next verse. I, I'm actually skipping a couple verses in this passage because it has to do with some drama around false teachers. You can read it. Uh, I didn't have time to get into it, so we're skipping those. But he continues on talking about his experience, and he says it like this, uh, where it's yellow, number three. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So in his letter to the Philippians, he's just having the time of his life. Um, it's almost a little intimidating. I don't think I would use the word joy as much as Paul uses it in this letter when he's currently in prison. But for whatever reason, the way he feels about his current situation is he's loving it. I'm, I will rejoice. He uses it 14 times in this letter. I will rejoice. Now, in his situation, while he's writing to the Corinthians, he describes it a little different. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Wow. In one situation, Paul is filled with joy, and in the other one, he's not sure he could go on. He despaired of life itself. What in the world was different? Because if I'm going to go through hard times, I'd much rather take the joy over the desperation, wouldn't you? Like if I'm going to have a hard time and I'm going to, if I'm going to take a risk for God, I'm going to step out and maybe move somewhere, give somewhere, uh, be more generous than I thought possible, or give more. If I'm going to take a risk for God, I'd much rather have the joy than finding my pla- myself in a place where I'm like, I'm not sure I can go on. And let me f- tell you, friends, I've experienced both. So what's different? That's what I want to explore. That's the question as we compare these two passages. They're very similar. What's different? In one situation, he had joy. In the other one, he wasn't sure he could go on. So going on, he says this. For I know, here's here's where his joy came from. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision, the first thing that he had in the Philippi, he knew people were praying for him. If you're going to make it through a hard time, you've got to know people are there for you. You've got to know that, that, that they've got your back. 
that there's people who get it. They're not, not thinking less of you. They're not judging you. That they're thinking about you and that they're praying for you. What's interesting, though, is if you follow the little green line, number four, he had that in Corinthian church, too. In both situations, they were praying for him. So that wasn't different. He had people. He had a community of people who knew what was going on in a world where there wasn't text messages. We talked about this last week. There weren't text messages. There wasn't internet. There wasn't email. It was snail mail, like really slow mail. And yet they knew enough about what was going on in Paul's life, and Paul knew enough about what was going on in their life in two different churches, and more than that, but in these two churches in particular, that he knew that he was being covered in prayer, and they were thinking and praying for him. We need that. That's what we want for ourselves. So he goes on. He said, I had your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians. He says he has delivered us. He uses that same word, deliverance. Here's a key to getting through a hard, hard time, especially when you pick up your cross. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God of deliverance. One of the formational stories of the Old Testament is God delivering his people from Israel, uh, from Egypt, his people of Israel from Egypt, bringing them out of slavery. God is a God of deliverance. And I don't know what you're going through or what you might go through if, if, if you take your faith, if you continue to take your faith seriously or if you step out and do that thing that you've been putting off or uh, whatever it is. I don't know what that looks like or what the cost will be, how your life will become more difficult because of it. But one of the ways in which we get through it is we trust that God will deliver us, which is similar to what he says next. In both in verse 20 of Philippians 1, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He talks about this expectation and hope. He says the same thing in Corinthians. On him we have set our hope. In both situations, he had hope. And here's the thing I love about hope. Hope is this really simple faith that the future doesn't have to look like the present. That, that w the way your life looks right now, that's not how your future has to look. That the future could be different. And, and this is something that's hard to believe sometimes because it's really easy for us to be like, this is how it's always going to be. That, that's, that's where desperation comes from, isn't it? It's like, this is just how it's always going to be. There's, no, there's not going to be any change. I'm not going to change. Other people aren't going to change. The world isn't going to change. Hope tells us otherwise. Hope convinces us against all evidence that, 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 that life could be different than it is right now. And Paul had that, even in the midst of difficult times. And he goes on. He says, in verse, uh, point number seven, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says something similar in Corinthians. He says, he talks about the God who raises from the dead. Paul started his faith by picking up a cross. He started his faith knowing that death was inevitable, that there would be a cost, that there would be a price he, in other words, he had this deep faith in the resurrection. 
this is his logic in this passage and in, in, in most of his letters, and, and, and it was central to his faith, and it was the reason why he took so many risks in his life, is that he says, as long as I'm living, I'll just keep doing the best good that I can, and when I die, even better. Now, I want to be very clear. Being willing to die for something you believe in is different than wanting to die. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? They, they, they're, they're opposites, actually. When I think about my life, I've experienced both, if I'm honest with you. There have been moments where I did not want to be alive anymore. Not very many moments, but enough. Too many, I should say, right? Maybe you have too. We were like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And in those moments, like, I'm not alive. I don't want to be alive. I don't, it's, it's not a great place to be. There are other moments, though, where I have such great confidence through the grace of God that, that God might do something in or through me or in the world and that I'd be willing to lay down my life if that's what it took. And friends, I've, in those moments, I never felt more alive. I mean, they're on, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. See, that's the beauty of picking up your cross. Is, is, it's, it, it's not a feeling of like, oh my gosh, I, I, don't, I should not want to live anymore. No, it, it's, it's this feeling of like, you know, once I'm willing to die for something that I believe in, I've, I, that's when you really become alive. And that's Paul. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for you. In other words, it's going to benefit you all, Paul says, if I stay alive because I'm one of your pastors. But uh, uh, what, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He goes on, verse 25, saying this. This is number eight. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith. He says something similar. He uses the same word. He says uh, in Corinthians, he says that God will continue to deliver us. This is part of his faith. He believed that God would deliver them. He believed that God had delivered them in the past. He'd experienced this. He had hope that the future could be different and that God would continue to do it. Friends, if you're here, then there's a good chance, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but if you're here, there's a good chance that you had an experience with God. And God did something in your life. And it meant something. And what this means, this idea that God will continue to deliver us, means that God isn't done. That, that, that what God did at one point, God will do again. And there might be seasons in, in the Bible, there's sometimes really long seasons. Sometimes they're generational seasons. They, they viewed less around an identity and more around the people. It would be years, maybe multiple generations before they felt like God showed up again. But the truth of the matter is that God would. And that what God did once, God can do again. Now here's one of the things that I want to walk away with. In the letter to the Philippians, he talks about his joy. He's having a great time in prison, it turns out. Uh, maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but he talks about his joy. In his letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, he said, there was a moment where I despised life itself, that I wasn't sure I was going to make it. And when you compare these two conversations, they, they all say basically the same thing. In both churches, he had people praying for him. In both places, he uh, had a... Uh, this trust that God would deliver him eventually. 
In both places, he, had, he talks about hope. In both places, he, he has faith in the resurrection that no matter what happens, even death, that God will fix it somehow. In both cases, he's convinced that God will continue to work, that God isn't done working. And yet, in one place, he had joy. In the other, he despised of life itself. And I say all of that to say this. You might have the same faith. You might have all the prayers you need. You might trust in the resurrection. You might have all the hope in the world. And sometimes that'll produce joy. And sometimes you're still going to be distraught. That's part of the Christian experience. And what I really want to say is this, that just because you find yourself where you despise life itself, where you were under such great pressure, this is how he says it in Corinthians, you were under such great pressure far beyond your ability to endure, just if you find yourself there, that doesn't necessarily mean you lost your faith. Oh, we love to beat ourselves up when we're already down. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Paul had the same faith. His theology didn't change, and the way he felt about his situation did. We've got to give ourselves grace. There will be times when we take risks for God, and it works out, and it's so much fun, and it's so exciting. I think we're headed into a season like that at Central City Church. And there are going to be other times in your life and in our life where we take risks for God, and we get ourselves into some trouble, and it is going to be overwhelming, and we are not going to be sure that we can even do it. And you know what? Neither one is necessarily bad. God is still at work. Now, both letters, he says one more thing. He ends by saying this. He says, uh, so that through my being with you, again, this is at the end of Philippians uh, 1, verse 26. He says, so that being through you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. He says something similar. It's slightly different, but it's the same kind of, uh, it'd be in the same category. He talks about how so many people are going to give thanks because of the way in which you've been gracious to me. In both situations, um, the people he's writing are a part of the story. That's what it means to be a community. That when one suffers, they all suffer. This is what he talks about in 2 Corinthians. That when one rejoices, they all rejoice. And he says that when you look at the story of the way in which God has used my imprisonment to advance the gospel, it's going to increase your faith. That's what he means, like you're, you're going to boast in Christ Jesus. It'll increase your, you'll, your confidence in what God is capable of doing will increase. This is why we need our stories. He says to the Corinthians, they'll give thanks. When you hear this story about how God has worked in your life and how God has taken something very difficult and found squeezed some kind of good out of it, even if it's just the lesson that you can rely on God more, that, that when you hear that, you're going to be grateful for the grace that God has done in your life. When we hear each other's story in the context of community, our faith can increase. When I hear stories of people in your life, uh, in, in friends' lives that have taken a big risk for God and learned something from it or seen something grow from it, man, doesn't that just inspire you and want to do the same? Make you want to step out and put your own life at risk a little bit, put your, the things that we treasure, right? All of those things that we treasure, just put them a little bit at risk in the name 
of Jesus and see what will happen because you saw what had happened when someone else did it. They become this inspiration in your confidence in God and the boasting in what God can do and the great gratefulness that you have towards God and other people just goes up. I want to end with a simple question. I might have lied. I don't know if I softened up there at all. Sorry. It's too muggy to soften up. I don't know. I want to end with a simple question. I do, I do want to challenge you to think about this. Have you ever counted the cost? Jesus says, count the cost before following him. But we live in this world where many of us just grew up in the faith. You know, so there wasn't like a, there wasn't always a big decision. Sometimes there was. Um, you'll hear like for me, I, I, there was a moment later in life where I was like, I'm either going to be all in or all out. Um, and so maybe that was your case as well. But for, for many of us, and this is also true for me, it's not either or, you know, it's this sense of like, you know, like, I don't know. I, I've just, I've been a Christian. So the question is, have you ever counted the cost? And even though Jesus asked it to, to do it at the beginning, I'm asking you to look back. What does it actually cost you? You know, following Jesus, has it cost you anything? Has there been a sacrifice? And what was that sacrifice? Think about it in the past, of course. What's been the cost? Um, I know that most people who've paid a, a cost, who have sacrificed to put things that they value at risk, when they look back on it and they've seen what God has done with it, whatever that may be, usually it's really good stuff. There's usually not a lot of regret. I don't know many people who've sacrificed for God and, and, and have felt bad about it. There's great joy in sacrifice. But think about it. What, what have been some of those costs? And also think about it towards the future. Starting now, starting today, what, what's the cost? Is there something that's laying on your heart that maybe has a little bit too, more, uh, too of a prominent spot in your life that's taken a little bit of uh, your attention, that's become a little bit too valuable? Is there something that God's asking you to lay down? When we sing the song, I Surrender All, what comes to mind? That, that you'd rather it be, I surrender some. What keeps it from being all? I challenge us, and this is something that I want to reflect on as well. What's the cost? What is God asking of us? Let's pray. God, I know that you called us to life and life abundance. But God, I also know that that life that is abundant is a, an upside-down kingdom where the first is last, <laughs> where the child <laughs> leads the way, where we have to rely on you and become as dependent as little kids in need of a parent, in need of a mother, in need of a father. We know that you want good things for us, Lord. But we know those good things are a part of an upside-down kingdom where the first are last and where we have to surrender all and become like little children dependent on you. God, we know that you want to bless us. But we also know that that blessing is in an upside-down kingdom where it says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger, Blessed are those who are forgiven. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, fall on us. Remind us of what it means to pick up the cross and follow you. 
Forgive us for those times when we failed to love you and failed to love our neighbors with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our soul. Come to forgive us, wash us clean, remove shame and guilt, remind us that we are loved, that there's no place for that, and equip us for the journey ahead. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.